Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, August 9th, 2021, 2022 rather, we have a litigation update on Regis versus University of Washington and discuss universities requiring faculty acknowledgement of indigenous land. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our expert on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent speaker in Joshua Bleich. Well, whom I will introduce very briefly. Joshua is a, fac is a faculty legal defense fund fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Prior to joining FIRE, Joshua was a law fellow at the National Association of College and University Attorneys. Joshua earned his BA in political science from Wabash College and his JD in 2019 from Indiana University Maurer School of Law. After Josh gives his remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can to the end today of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Josh, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ryan, and uh, thank you so much for having me here and, and giving me the opportunity to update your members about this uh, really, I think, exciting and, and uh, potentially important case um, involving Stuart Regis. Uh, so first, I'll uh, start with the facts of this case. Um, Stuart Regis is a computer science faculty member at the University of Washington, which is in Seattle. Uh, he's been employed there since 2004 uh, as a teaching professor or, or basically an, an untenured lecturer. Um, and he specializes in introductory computer science courses. He's renowned for his teaching and for, for the approach that he has to teaching students who are new to coding and to computer science. Uh, he even has led an award-winning or a, a winning coding competition. Uh, team to a coding competition, um, and he, he really takes uh, pride in, in his teaching and, and his, his interactions with his students. Um, he also has a really long history of exercising his right to free speech, even expressing dissenting viewpoints. In the late 70s and early 80s, he wrote for local and national media about being gay, a gay man at that time and, and the mental health issues that he dealt with. And in the 90s, he protested then the war on drugs at, while he was employed at the University of Stanford, and that ended up getting him fired from there. Um, but more recently at the University of Washington, he has uh, spoken out about land acknowledgments. Now, what are land acknowledgments? These are... Uh, becoming more and more popular on college campuses. And, and, you know, for those of you who are not as online or as tuned into the culture wars, you know, may not be as familiar with these, but essentially uh, what they do is they allow any kind of institution, um, in this case, it's the University of Washington, to acknowledge the historic presence or ownership of an indigenous tribe on the land that this institution now sits. Um, so in the University of Washington's case, they have a list of best practices as part of their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, where they encourage faculty to include a land acknowledgement statement on their syllabi. Uh, the university's land acknowledgement statement reads, the University of Washington acknowledges the Coast Salish peoples of this land, 
the land which touches the shared waters of all tribes and bands within the Squamish, Tulalip, and Muckleshoot nations. So they have this university-approved version of a land acknowledgement statement. That, uh, then the School of Computer Science and Engineering, of which Stuart Regis is a member, uh, goes and it encourages its faculty to include on their syllabi. The issues for Stuart Regis kind of began uh, almost a year ago, last fall, when somebody shared a article from The Atlantic about land acknowledgements, essentially arguing that they are performative uh, and that they don't really mean much, uh, even for those who, who might care, might believe in the sentiment behind them. Uh, he chimed in and, and also noted his disapproval of land acknowledgement statements and and noted that he, you know, he wanted to organize faculty to, to have a discussion about them. And he also at that time noted that he planned to include on his syllabus a, an alternative land acknowledgement statement. Um, this alternative land acknowledgement statement is based on uh, John Locke's labor theory of property. And, and Regis's statement reads, I acknowledge that by the labor theory of property, the Coast Salish people can claim historical ownership of almost none of the land currently occupied by the University of Washington. Uh, now, obviously, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek nature to this, but but essentially it's Stuart Regis registering his dissent with you know what he believes is you know uh, what he calls a performative act of conformity in these statements. Um, so when time came for him to issue his, uh, his winter quarter 2022 syllabus, the University of Washington is still in the quarter system. Uh, he included this in his syllabus in the section where others might include the university approved statement. This caught the university's attention and, and they, they didn't really like what he had to include there. Um, the director of the Allen school, um, unilaterally removed his syllabus from the course website or from the school's website, deleted the statement and uploaded a new version without it. Uh, Stuart tried to update it again, including his new statement, and they removed it a second time, this time including protections to prevent anybody from editing it. They also, uh, after his first day of class, which by the way, um, there were, there were no issues, no disruptions, uh, no other, you know, <laughs> Uh, it, he, his his ability to teach was not otherwise affected by his inclusion of this alternate lands, uh, land acknowledgement statement. Uh, but the director then sent an email to his students apologizing for uh, what they said was an offensive land acknowledgement statement and for, for essentially creating a hostile environment through this syllabus statement. Uh, they also then created what we call a shadow course, um, which is a separate course section and encouraged Stuart Regis's students to disenroll from his course section and uh, instead enroll in this other shadow course as a way of punishing him for his viewpoint on this on this issue. Uh, about 30 percent of his students left. And in that other course was taught by a professor, not in a, a live uh, lecture like Stuart's class, but via recorded lectures, and it was um, it was all online. Shortly after that, they also opened an investigation into him, uh, alleging that he may have violated university policy. Uh, one of these policies is Executive Order 31, which prohibits faculty and students from 
which you know is is what we allege in our complaint is a unconstitutionally broad and over vague policy. It essentially prohibits or, or allows the university to punish students and faculty for statements, uh, not just conduct, but could be speech that is inappropriate or offensive. Um, so they they notified him that he was being investigated under this policy, among others, and set up this shadow course. For months, he was not informed of the status of this uh, this investigation, he didn't, you know, didn't know what could happen. There's, there's a threat of suspension, threat of uh, termination as part of this. And uh, up until the time that we filed this complaint, he still didn't know if they were even going to form a faculty committee, which is what the university is supposed to do under this policy. Uh, to, 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 to today, there's still been no actual hearing, no formal investigation. It's unclear what the university is doing. If, anything um so what this does is just it holds him into this uh point of you know limbo in his career he's been uh essentially ostracized from this community that he's been a part of since 2004 and uh this this first amendment harm occurs every single day that he is uh you know continuing to teach under threat of uh, threat of suspension or termination so, uh, Sir Regis came to fire for assistance. We wrote a letter explaining to the university and its administrators how it ran afoul of his First Amendment rights. Uh, when that didn't get traction, we engaged him as a client and, and instead decided to sue. Uh, we are suing the University of Washington's president in our official capacity and three administrators in their official and individual capacities seeking damages to compensate him for the First Amendment harm that he has suffered, as well as an injunction preventing them from establishing another shadow course, which they have done for his fall quarter now as well, um, as well as preventing them from enforcing this vague and overbroad Executive Order 31, which allows the university to punish anything that is offensive or inappropriate. Um, so I think with that, I, I'm sure there's something that I forgot, but uh, that's the status of the case right now. Uh, we, we are awaiting an answer or a dispositive motion from the defendants right now, which is due at the end of September. Um, and we are looking forward to continuing to help Stuart Regis vindicate his First Amendment rights in this case. Um, so I think with that bit done, I'd like to turn it back over to Ryan and see if we have any questions. I'd be happy to answer anything. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that that update on on the case. Um, and I'd like to remind our audience, if you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen and I'll read those questions for Josh. I have a, I have a couple of questions um, off, off the top, right? Um, has Is any part of this case in, considered how the university, which is a public university, might be wasting public funds by you know, creating a shadow course, right? Um, it's It seems like if they were doing that in, in unnecessarily, it would be a waste of public funds and there could be uh, a complaint taken on in that regard. Yeah, it doesn't consider that specifically. Um, the 
basis for our uh, challenging of the shadow course comes from a case out of the Second Circuit, uh, which is Levin versus Harleston. Uh, that involved a City University of New York uh, faculty member who was punished in part by creating one of these shadow classes. Um, and currently, there's no precedent for that in the Ninth Circuit, but uh, that we're, we're hoping to build on that precedent from the Second Circuit uh, in order to be you know as protective as possible of, of faculty rights and and anything that can cause a uh, reasonable faculty member to to feel chilled from exercising any additional first uh, accessing uh, expressing that you know their first amendment rights um, is a is a first amendment violation and a basis for retaliation and uh, we argue that by creating this shadow course, that's that's what they've done here. So we we haven't we haven't considered it under a you know public funds or you know a waste of public resources issue. Um, we're purely considering it here under you know as a as a basis for creating a chilling effect of faculty speech. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, another part of this, in kind of a more broad question, um, we've seen this recently. It's come to light this and in how investigations are kind of used as a punishment in and of themselves. Yeah. Right? Where you know this this professor is put in limbo. He's he's stressed out about this issue. It has a chilling effect on speech because who wants to go through an investigation like this? Um, do you think that this case, if it goes on and gets goes goes to higher levels, could have a place in a place in the in the reasoning behind defenses like this or uh, can have an effect on other cases um in this in this reasoning it's become more and more prominent um to to challenge these sort of investigations punishments so where do you think this case plays a role in that yeah absolutely and, and this it really is a huge problem and something that fire sees all over the place where universities will announce some kind of investigation into faculty or student speech uh, to try to appease critics, but won't really do much about it because they know they're kind of, you know, in, in a tough place. Um, whereas we would argue that once you know that it's protected speech, once, once you know that there's no conduct involved and that it's not falling into one of the narrow exceptions to the first amendment, then it should be dropped. That's the end of the story. But by, you know, engaging in these protracted investigations that you're right, that that in and of itself is punishment, even if there's no event, even if eventually they come to the right conclusion and there's no punishment, there's no suspension, there's no docking of pay or anything like that. They've gone through months of stress and uncertainty and uh, harm to their reputation because people around them think that they have committed some policy violation uh, or, or, you know, are, are harassing or, you know, whatever the case might be. And that's just not the case. And so, yeah, that's, that's, you know, something that we keep in mind and something that there's good law in the ninth circuit about already, but we're always interested in, you know, improving that and adding to the, uh, adding to the, the jurisprudence there is that, you know, in the Ninth Circuit, anything that's reasonably likely to deter an employee from engaging in further protected speech, um, that can be an adverse action. It doesn't have to be a certain kind. It doesn't have to be even be severe. Um, and we want to, you know, show that this is this is just another example of just that, where it's you know, this long protracted investigation that that is constitutional harm in and of itself. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, moving on to some uh, audience questions now, and we have, have a lot, and keep them coming, please. Um, first is Tom Palmer. He asks, are, th are there parallel cases that have been adjudicated on this topic? On, on uh, land acknowledgement statements specifically, none that I'm aware of. Um, there are a few cases uh, th this also kind of falls within the doctrine of employee speech and of what some term an academic exception to the employee speech doctrine uh, in the Ninth Circuit. There's this case Demers versus Austin. There are also cases in the uh, Fourth, Sixth and Fifth Circuits uh, that basically exclude faculty speech when it's part of teaching or research or scholarship um, from the Garcetti exception, which basically accepts from First Amendment protection employee speech when it's done as part of somebody's job duties. Um, but because professors naturally speak on matters of public concern as part of their job duties, they're, they're going to need greater First Amendment protection, or they're, they're not, they're not typical government employees. Um, they, they, I, I keep occupy kind of a special space and our universities are, are a unique space. You know, they're, they're, um, incubators for, for thought and for, for creation of new knowledge. And so, so there are other cases along that line that don't have to do with land acknowledgement statements, but do have to deal that do deal with public employee speech when it is by public college and university faculty on matters of public concern as part of their job duties. And so, so we do see it fitting, fitting along with those kinds of cases. We have an, another question about Executive Order 31. Uh, when was the executive order issued and is there any prior litigation under it? So it was issued, I don't have the date in my head, but but years and years ago, I think in the 80s is when it was issued. Uh, but we do know it's been continuously updated, including a couple of times in uh, the current uh President Kasi's administration a couple of times during her administration. So um, I don't know exactly when the offending portion was introduced. It could have been, it, you know, when it was first issued. I, like I said, I think it was in the 80s, but I don't have the exact date. Um, what we do know is that, you know, it's still very much in effect. They're, they've noted their intent to potentially uh, charge Sewer Regis under this policy and to my knowledge, I don't know of any other litigation that challenges this specifically. Um, no. Um, next question. Often when sports teams change their name or ask or their mascots uh, to stop offending Native Americans, the Native Americans asked about it, say that they are never bothered by it in the first place. Has anyone asked the members of this local tribes how they feel about these acknowledgements? Um, and I, so I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know I, the university's process when they made this acknowledgement. I don't know who they consulted or not. I do know that um, it is a topic of debate and, you know, there's support and uh, critics, supporters and critics of these on the right and the left. And, you know, among native tribes, I, you know, in just doing reading for this case, I, I know that there are, there are progressive criticisms of land acknowledgement statements. There are criticisms from tribal groups of them as performative. Um, I, I do want to note that fire itself doesn't take any position on the utility or the propriety of land acknowledgement statements. Um, you know, but what we do know is that it's a matter of, public debate and because it's up for debate because it's you know subject to uh 
you know, it's, it's a, it's a matter of public concern. And so it's something that faculty members, especially in this case, when Stuart Regis was invited to speak on this topic by the administration, uh, it's something that they need to be allowed to engage in. Um, but so to, to answer the actual question, I don't know, uh, who, if anybody was specifically consulted, um, by the university or, or, or by anybody else for, for these acknowledgement statements. Our next question is the complaint based on the strict restrictions to your client's speech, compelled speech or both or neither further. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, further, are his rights being cabined but, uh, to some extent because he does not have tenure? So I'll get to the tenure point, I think, second. Uh, we don't have a compelled speech claim in our complaint uh, because essentially, um, what I'll, I'll just say what we do have instead is, is that we have First Amendment retaliation claims and a, and a First Amendment viewpoint discrimination claim um, because... Theoretically, faculty members could choose not to say anything about this. Um, where the issue exists here is that the university issued this recommendation, um, which again, universities are free to have their own thoughts on these things and, and their own policies, and they can recommend that people take their own, but or, or they can recommend language. But the moment that they punished Stuart Regis for issuing a dissenting viewpoint on this topic is when they ran into uh, First Amendment and ran into violating the First Amendment. Um, I, I want to note as well that there were other faculty members who also modified their land acknowledgement statements that didn't use the canned version from the University of Washington, but they did so in a way that was also supportive of the general uh, idea or that that even went further into, you know, acknowledging the noting the sacred land there or, or talking about uh, ways that tribes thought about things and so kind of went further in that direction. And, and those faculty members were not punished like Stuart Regis was punished. So it's clear to us here that, you know, it was the, the viewpoint discrimination, the viewpoint discrimination is the problem here is where they invited him to speak on this topic. He did so they didn't like what he had to say. And so then they set up the shadow course they sent him through this process of a long drawn out investigation and accusations of uh, policy violations. Um, it is important too, and back to the tenure point that, you know, I, I don't know exactly how this would be the same or different if he did have tenure, but there are likely far greater protections that would be in place for him procedurally if he did have tenure. Um, they, they are still following, they are going through these processes that we, as far as we can tell is, you know, how the, the communication to him about the policy violation of executive order 31 seems to be how they go about business. Um, but a faculty member who has tenure generally does have greater protections. They have greater procedural and due process protections that I don't want to, I guess, maybe avoid using due process because those, those are part of the, um, you know, not necessarily constitutional protections, but protections of tenure. Um, but yeah, and typically they, because of those greater protections, greater procedural protections, universities are not as 
keen to go after tenured faculty members for controversial speech. Um, when they don't have those kinds of protections, they're often easier targets. And, um, you know, and, and FIRE's got some research about this. We've got a Scholars Under Fire database that I encourage people to, to, to look at. And it seems that a uh, disproportionate amount of faculty member who are targeted or who are punished uh, don't have protection of tenure. Um, does a professor at the University of Washington have the option to omit such a statement altogether? You, are, you already answered that, that they could not. Um, one another question is: Is he is he continuing to be paid, and is he continuing to teach courses? Is it just the investigation, or is there other punitive actions being taken? Yeah, so he is still teaching, um, though he has the lightest teaching load this year that he's ever had uh, since he since he started there. He's, I think, teaching one course this semester and, and uh, or this quarter um, and two in the fall, um, which is light for what, you know, what what he's typically had. Um, so, yes, he is still being allowed to teach, but so there, there are no other punitive actions yet. Uh, about keeping him from the classroom or suspending him. But it is this, like I mentioned, this, you know, state of limbo that he is sitting in with, with his peers at the uh, computer science and engineering school and, and with having this investigation hanging over his head. And, and, you know, it's important to note that even, you know, even without yet any, any specific decision on uh, being suspended or being um, terminated or having, pay doctor other privileges, um, that, that shadow class and that ongoing investigation, those are First Amendment harms. Those are adverse employment actions. Those, those do chill his and, and a, you know, any reasonable person's uh, continued protect ex protected expression. Though this case is occurring in the Ninth Circuit, how applicable is it to the reasoning of the Sixth Circuit in Merriweather, which I believe Fire had a hand in and in as well. Yeah, that is, yeah, that um, is an, another uh, case that Fire had a hand in. Um, and while the faculty member there, ultimately, um, the court, I, I believe, found that um, her fleeting remarks on uh, sexual topics or, or use of profane language was not protected or was not a matter of public concern. It is applicable um, back to what I was saying with the uh, academic freedom exception to the Garcetti rule, um, where the Fifth Circuit adopted that test. And instead of applying um, Garcetti and holding that, you know, a, a public employee's speech when it was part of their job duties is not protected, um, went instead to the more traditional pickering conic balancing test. Um, and, and that's, I, I believe, ultimately where the faculty member unfortunately lost. But this case, we, we do see matching up with that and that Stuart Regis's expression here is part of a syllabus, which is, you know, a core function of a professor as an academic to, you know, set their syllabus to decide what students read and, and their grading policies to some extent. And, you know, in this core academic function, he's also speaking on a matter of public concern. And um, it, it's not categorically not protected under Garcetti. And instead, because of Demers and, and similar to the reason in Buchan reasoning in Buchanan and Austin in the Fourth Circuit, um, that that still is uh, has the opportunity to be protected by the First Amendment. 
Is your claim predicated solely by the U.S. constitutional grounds or other law? Uh, yeah. Employment law, state law, et cetera. Yeah, we, we don't have any employment law claims or state law claims. Um, no, no state constitutional law. There There is a uh, state of Washington constitutional provision on free expression. Uh, we decided not to include that. It appears to be coextensive with the First Amendment. So um, so so it, it solely includes uh, First Amendment claims, Section 90, 1983 claims. And so he is still teaching. Um, just with a, with a smaller, with a smaller class, smaller, uh, course load, um, in his new, uh, syllabus, does he, is he including this, uh, land acknowledgement or his, his, uh, amended one that he, he is, he, he grew up. Yep. He's still including it. And he introduced it on the first day of class and there have been no disturbances, um, no issues to, to our knowledge. Uh, um, so, so things are, you know, even, even with this land acknowledgement statement, he's still able to teach effectively. He's still able to be the you know great professor that he always has been. And, um, kind of a broader question. Um, what constitutes a publicly publicly funded university and therefore one that must abide by the first amendment? What makes the university of Washington one that must abide as opposed to another school? So, you know, they, the, the exact organization organization of state universities varies by the state, but, um, basically the university of Washington is a public entity. It's, um, an arm of the state of Washington. It receives funding from the state of Washington. Uh, it's, um, I don't, you know, proportions vary. And, and these days the proportion of income that universities receive via state dollars versus tuition and other things I, I know is, is decreasing. Uh, but essentially it's that it's set and sometimes they're set up in charters in a constitutional provision. Sometimes they're statutorily created. Um, but, but at its core, it's an, it's an arm of the state of Washington and uh, therefore a, a state entity and, and able to be sued under section 1983. And, and to, to be clear there, it's, you know, and, and I know the title for this is university of Washington and that's, that's convenient shorthand, but, um, for, you know, ex parte young reasons. And for, for 1983 reasons, the, the, the specific defendants in this case are the president and three administrators who, who, who actually caused the first amendment harm here. Another question from the audience, why can't the university simply have a position that it's agents slash teachers are not to undermine? Why can't the, if the university as an organization, as an employer, take a position on an issue, and say, tell its employees that you are not to undermine our, our stated position like another employer might. Can you, can you repeat that one more time? I'm sorry. Yeah. Why can't the university hold a position, say, say about land acknowledgement, that this is the Native American's land, mm -hmm. and have it be policy that its agents slash professors can't undermine mine it? Well, does, does the university not have that, have that ability because of their uh, publicly funded status? So I, I think it has less to do with their status as a uh, state entity and more so uh, more to do with the fact that professors are special kinds of state employees here. Um, and basically having some kind of provision like that, I would, I would imagine is viewpoint discriminatory. Whereas, you know, you are not allowing somebody to express viewpoint X if university has viewpoint Y 
if that makes sense. And where it differs for other state employees likely is that, uh, you know, in, in general, state employees who are, who are not public college and university faculty, um, like I said, with, you know, the state employee speech doctrine from Garcetti, um, stemming then earlier there from Pickering and Connick, you know, the state has the ability to, um, not have the efficient administration of it, the services that it provides affected by the public employee speech. And that's kind of the reasoning there, but faculty are different. Faculty are always commenting on, uh, controversial issues on matters of public concern. Uh, the first amendment, uh, is especially concerned with academic freedom. Um, so faculty ha should have the right to, to pursue, uh, you know, even even controversial research topics to write about controversial re research topics without fear of retaliation or retribution from the state, um, and and part of that is also writing on uh, and and discussing these topics, and and because of that academic freedom, right, and because faculty are are kind of a different uh, type of public employee. Um, that's that's why, I, in general, I think that would be impermissible. And can you speak to? any of the origin of these kind of land acknowledgements, especially at universities, um, why, why have they become popular and did they grow out of a particular um, movement or theory? So I don't know their exact origin. Um, I don't know who popularized them or, or who, you know, first conceived of them as, as a, you know, as, 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 something worth pursuing. Um, but I do know that they have gotten a lot more popular in the last couple of years as universities become more and more concerned with showing a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and with, you know, showing that they are being inclusive to people of all kinds, um, whether it's black students, indigenous students, uh, um, immigrants. And, and I think it, you know, it's really, the, the popularity of these statements have exploded along with, you know, what we see elsewhere with, you know, new positions about diversity, equity, inclusion committees designed to study how universities are doing with diversity, equity, inclusion. And, um, it, it seems like this is, this is a, an, another avenue for, for that kind of work. So, well, we've, we've run out to the end of the questions and I consolidated some of the questions. So if I didn't ask your specific one, it's just to prevent uh, duplication. Um, but do you have any closing thoughts, uh, Josh, on this case or where you think it might go next, et cetera? So, you know, with, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to predict where this might go next, but I know that Stewart is a real champion for the first amendment and for free speech. And, um, we really, you know, sincerely hope that we're able to vindicate his rights here and then also create some good law for both his colleagues at the University of Washington and faculty all over the place. And, um, you know, I guess I'll also end by just, you know, if you're not aware of FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, um, check us out. We are, uh, we recently expanded our mission. We uh, were formerly focused on defending the expression rights, rights of conscience and due process for students and faculty on college campuses. But now we're turning our focus uh, um, to be to be more broad and, and focusing on First Amendment issues in the country writ large. So it's exciting times for us, exciting times for this case. And um, 
I just, you know, thank you for, for your interest in what we're doing and, and interest in Stuart's case here. And, um, I hope to have some more good updates for you soon. Yeah. And we, we'd love to have you back, uh, when the case moves further along so you can give us another litigation update on it. But on behalf of the Federal Society, I want to thank you for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise today. And I'd like to thank our audience for joining us and participating, especially with all those great questions. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at bed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye out on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.